the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Friday. It's four o'clock, and that means I get to talk to you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions, questions about what we believe as Christians and why, questions about the Bible, maybe questions about something going on in your life, and you want to know what the Bible says. We'll do our best to answer those questions. 340-9585 is our phone number for your live calls. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the app. Just push the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Have a great weekend. Remember, I try my best to exhort every Friday. Go to church this weekend, not to be a spectator, but to be a participant, to be a part of a thriving body of Christ. Find somebody who looks like they need prayer, somebody who looks like they just need someone who cares about them. Be Jesus' arms, be his voice, be his heart. I promise you it will change the church experience forever if you do so. Um, We're excited every weekend. Uh, Tonight, because it's Friday night here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to finish Acts chapter 10. Tonight, Peter gets to preach, and the Gentile inclusion in the New Testament church begins, and the reason that's exciting for us, most of us, is because we're the Gentiles that that benefited as a a long-range result of uh, Peter's message. So uh, it's interesting to see how the Holy Spirit's working behind the scenes, preparing not only Peter's heart to deliver the message, but preparing also the hearts of those in the house of Cornelius who are going to hear. And tonight, everybody gets saved. The Holy Spirit falls in power once again. So that's tonight. Uh, I'm going to be finishing Romans chapter 12 on Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, wherever you go. Take your Bible and let the Lord speak to your heart. Okay, let me go to our first question today. It's from our email inbox from Richard. He says, was Jesus already God the Father slash the Son? Now, I did. It, I read it that way because I don't really know for sure, Richard, what you meant. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to muddle my way through it. But was Jesus already God the Father, the Son, before Jesus came to earth? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
or, and this is back to Richard's question, or am I reading the scripture out of context? Also, we know that God's name was unmentionable by the Hebrews, and we know that Jesus' Hebrew name was Yeshua, and God's was Yahweh. Is the proper way to address them correctly by those names, or our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and Holy Spirit instead? Richard, I'm going to take the back part of your question first, simply because it's the easiest to understand, and I want to be sure uh, I, I, uh, I answer these questions. Um, God's name for us, God's revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we pray, uh, we, we can mention the name. You know, the, the Hebrews felt this. And by the way, that was just superstition. There's nothing religious or spiritual about it. They just figured that the name of God was so to be revered that they dared not mention the name. They would never spell it out. We don't know whether it's Yahweh or Jehovah because the scribes would never write the whole thing out. They felt they, they were unworthy to write the name. So they would write Y-H-V-H and they would just do the best that they can. But but Jesus doesn't care what you call him. His name shall be called Jesus. Why? He will save the people from their sins. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, um, the Son of God, who is also God the Son. So don't get hung up in, in what to pray or, or what name to pray in. Just be with Jesus. Just talk to him. He is the way that God revealed himself to the world. And apart from Jesus becoming a human, there's no way we ever could have bridged that gap between an unrecognizable God, a holy, consuming fire God, and a God who loves us. So Jesus is the way we pray. Now, I know Jesus said, until now, you haven't asked anything in my name, but now ask the Father and he will give you in my name. But Jesus wasn't giving us a formula for successful prayer. What he was doing was saying to his disciples as he was prepared uh, to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and give us access, he was simply saying that we can pray in his name. That doesn't mean there's anything magic about the name Jesus. It was a very common name. But but everything that he was, everything that he stood for in a, a Jewish culture, that's what the name meant. He gave us access. He opened the door to heaven for us, Richard. And now because he goes, we can have access to the throne room of God, the Father, God the Son, and of course God the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So don't get exercised about what name to pray in. And don't get caught up in the in the sort of false religiosity of not wanting to say the name or to write the name. I still get frustrated. In fact, it really hurts my heart when people will write emails and they won't spell out God. They'll put G-D. Or when people refer to Yeshua, uh, people who aren't Jews especially, it, it, there's just no reason to do that. Jesus has given us the name above all other names. That's very important. Now, the first part of your question, Richard, um, you're taking it out of context. I can't really understand for sure the question. Uh, Jesus was always the second person of the Trinity. Uh, in eternity past, he was the Son of God who is God the Son, just as the Father is the first person of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit is the second person of the Trinity. So this isn't a, a situation where... where um, um, God is saying that um, Jesus was the Father and he was the Son. There is a Jesus-only movement, which is heretical, by the way, where they claim you have to pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. That's simply not true. They are separate and distinct persons of the Trinity, the triune God. Now, the context of Hebrews chapter 1 uh, is found in the fourth verse um, where where Paul writes, and I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. The, the, the purpose here is presenting Jesus as superior to angels um, a little later in the book, superior to Moses. Um, um, many Jews revered angels. Uh, all Jews revered Moses. And Paul is presenting a case in the book of Hebrews for the superiority of, of Jesus to anything and everything. And so he's quoting this, um, quote, quoting Psalm 2, which is messianic. Every Jew understood that. Um, it's used by Paul uh, in Acts chapter 13. 
And the word today, when it says, you are my son today, I've become your father, today refers to the day of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Um, So that's the reference here. But Jesus is always the son of God who's God the son. And the reason I say it that way is because there are cults who will say, well, we believe Jesus is the son of God, but they don't believe that he is God. So we Christians need to make that clear. Only God can forgive sins if Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Well, if he wasn't God, he couldn't have done that. He would have had no place to do that. So, Richard, I hope that helps. That's as at least as I understand your question, uh, the best that we can do. Jesus is superior uh, to uh, angels because he's God's son. That's the context of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. So, Richard, thank you very, very much for your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that was sent in anonymously. Um, Anonymous wants to know, when Christians say they are saved... What are they saved from? Anonymous, this is an important question to understand because it means we're saved from us, from condemnation, from eternal damnation. We're saved from our sins, from the control of sin, but we're also saved from the penalty of sin. So when we say we're saved, think of it as being rescued. We've been rescued from an untenable position. We've been rescued from a a place where we're hopelessly lost. Nothing we can do. uh, There's no possible approach that we can have to God. And Jesus rescued us. And then we have eternal life. So that's what we mean we're saved. We're saved from sin, the control of sin, the punishment of sin. We're saved from the consequence of sin, eternity in hell, being tormented. We're rescued from who we used to be, and we become something completely new. Therefore, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he, and I always add she, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. One of the absolute great promises in your New Testament Bible. Here's a question from Steve. Uh, Pastor Ron, if the Holy Spirit is the true teacher... Why are there so many different interpretations of the Bible? Um, Steve, the Holy Spirit is our teacher for sure. Um, But he is our teacher uh, in the sense that he sheds light on our limited ability to understand. You know, it's it's, uh, easy for someone to say, uh, well, you know, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit teaches me. And by the way, many do say this, uh, the Holy Spirit teaches me. And um, uh, I don't need to, to go to church. I don't need a Bible instructor. I've got my own interpretation. Um, but, but we know that's not true because God gave pastors and teachers as a gift to the church. We all need to be instructed. So why are there so many different interpretations? The answer is because though the Spirit of God who wrote the Word of God presents it to us perf- perfectly, Our ability to understand is imperfect, and that's putting it mildly. And we all have lots of different reasons we come up with different conclusions. Sometimes our scholarship isn't honest. We want to to believe what we believe. We don't want anybody to challenge us. And so when somebody says, but that's not what the Bible says, we get people that respond that way to the questions they ask on this program. But Pastor Ron, don't you think this and don't you think that? Well, there's different interpretations because there's different levels of yieldness to the Spirit. Our motives are not always the same. So different interpretations aren't necessarily bad. But what we have to understand is that if we're going to study the Bible and and make it valuable to us, we can't study it for what we want it to say, Steve. We have to study it from the perspective of learning what the author intended to say. In your own experience, Steve, I'm sure, and in my experience as well, I've had people come to me and say, well, Pastor, on this verse says this to me, but that verse doesn't say anything similar. So we read, Paul says, we, we, we see in part now, we, we, as though looking through a glass dimly, We've got this flesh, and we've got our own agendas, and and so we 
uh, impose on the scriptures instead of reading the scripture, understanding it, interpreting it in light of what the author intended to say. That's the only thing, Steve, that really matters. So the Holy Spirit is a true teacher, but remember his job is to shed light. Not There's no intention here of saying, well, whatever somebody says, well, you know, the Spirit said to me, uh, the Spirit can't contradict himself, so if the Spirit said something that contradicts his word, then we know that's not true. And I think a lot of the way people interpret the Bible is a sign of their immaturity in their faith. I think a lot of it reveals the condition of our hearts. I will say to our church on Sunday that every time the Bible is open, every time the Spirit of God is speaking to you, we have to be prepared to have our minds and our hearts changed. And too many of us, we don't want our hearts or our minds changed. The obvious answer, Steve, to the question deals with our walk with the Lord. You see, we can't interpret what the Holy Spirit is saying to us correctly if we're in sin. If we're withholding ourselves from what the Lord wants to do. So if we're not being obedient, or if we're being outright rebellious, there's no way that we can hear the Spirit. We're quenching the Spirit, Paul will write. We're not to quench the Spirit. We do that through disobedience. And when we're disobedient, or when we're unwilling uh, to do what God tells us to do, Steve, um, our interpretations are going to be skewed. So that's the reason. By the way, I don't think this is what you meant, but just in case, if you're asking also about... Why are there so many different translations? I've explained that on the program before. Uh, it's it's just because um, um, language changes. Our English language has changed a lot since the King James came to us. So um, words mean different things. So the newer translations simply try to write to us in a, uh, a more contemporary style that would, would be easier for us to understand. Not better, not worse, just different. The other reason, of course, is they're diff- they're interpreting different manuscripts, and we get some help from the Spirit that way. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We'd like to close this week with some good phone calls. Here's Jennifer who writes, who should we pray to, Jesus or God? I sort of dealt with that, Jennifer, in the first uh, question that that, uh, uh, we had today. Uh, We should pray to God. You can call him Father. You can call him Abba, Daddy. You can call him Jesus. And you can call him the Holy Spirit. All three are God. There's no competition between the three. We're not ignoring one if we pray to the others. And again, let me emphasize, Jennifer, for you and for anybody else who's confused by this, is that Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. There's no way we could know who he was. He gave us his law, and his law pointed him out as so holy, but the law separated us from God because the law proved we were guilty. He's revealed himself to us in creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. There's no nation or language where they're not understood. He's also revealed himself to us by giving us a conscience. Creation and conscience both come from Romans chapter 1. But only Jesus revealed who he really was. Philip, Jesus said, after all this time, don't you know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father? So they're one But they're separate and distinct. In order for humans to be able to talk to God, that's what prayer is, Jesus had to become human. That was always God's plan. Jesus just didn't start when he was born as a baby. He always was. He always will be. Even at his death, he never stopped being God. What died was his human nature. And he did it so that we could have access to God. So what it means is very simple for all of us. Pray. Just pray. There's no formula. If you pray to Jesus, the Father's not in heaven saying, well, after everything I've done, that's how they thank me. 
if we pray the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't say, well, wait a minute, I sent the Holy Spirit. They should be praying to me. Perfect unity, no competition. So, Jennifer, just pray. Open your heart and just talk to Jesus. Let me mention one other thing as it relates to prayer. We make it so difficult. We change our language. We change the tone of voice. Just talk conversationally to Jesus. And do it regularly. When I was a brand new Christian, in fact, I was six months old in the Lord. I knew this because I'd just been called by the Lord to be a pastor and I had no idea what that meant or anything. And a friend of mine said, hey, I'm going to meet with some pastors today. Would you like to come along? And we just get together and we pray. And I thought, oh, I would love to do that. I'd be around some real pastors. Maybe they can show me what I'm supposed to be doing. And we had this really nice conversation. And when we started praying, it really bugged me because even the pastors, they started changing the way they spoke. We had these wonderful, normal conversations going on for an hour before we started praying. But as soon as they started praying, it's like they went into performance mode. And Jennifer, too many of us as Christians, we do that. We, we, we try to impress God with our prayers. We try to teach other people that we're praying for. I know I've said this to you many times in the audience, but I wish just once you could be here with me in the few minutes before a radio program starts and listen to the way that these 5 to 12-year-olds pray. They pray for you. They pray for the radio program. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. They don't scrunch their eyes closed. They don't try to preach a message. Dear Jesus, I want to pray for the radio program. We thank you for a beautiful day. Please help Pastor Ron not mess up. <laughs> That's the way to pray. Just talk to him. If a five-year-old gets that, then so too should we. Here is an anonymous question. Is there such a thing as an ex-Christian um, the answer is no. I'll give you the short answer first, but let me explain. I think what you're asking is, can somebody who says they're a Christian lose their salvation? Uh, and and the, the, the answer is no. If they ever were a Christian, they always will be a Christian. And they may be sinning. They may be disobedient. But Jesus said, I've not lost one that you've given me. So there's no such thing as an ex-Christian. You want a good exercise, Anonymous? Go to somebody who is a former Marine and say, are you an ex-Marine? And you'll get lectured. Because there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Well, the same thing is true with Jesus holding us in his hands. Isn't that the case? He said, he's got you. No one can take you from my hands. Our problem is that we see people who say they're a Christian, but we see no fruit in their life and never did. We see people who came to, to a, a professing faith uh, in a moment of need, that need passes, and then they don't think they need Jesus anymore. Were they ever really saved? Of course they weren't saved. So it's just one of those things that you have to understand. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, and if we will... Um, hold on to him. He's the one who initiated our faith. He's the one that will take us home to the end. So it's very important. Anonymous, this is why opening your Bible and understanding doctrine is important. If you understand the doctrine of salvation, soteriology is the theological term. If you understand that, then there's great security in your salvation. If you understand that, you never worry about being away from Jesus. You know he's always there. You know what he promised. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. If you, according to Jesus, abide in him, the NIV says remain in him, he will abide in you. And there's nobody who's walking with Jesus. There's nobody who is, uh, who is walking in obedience who has any question at all about their salvation. The, the, the people that have questions about their salvation are people that 
really don't want to spend any time with Jesus. They're not interested in the Word. And they're made to feel insecure, I think, on purpose by the Holy Spirit. So these are really important doctrinal matters to sort of hash out, and you've got to find out for yourself. But the only way you can do that is to invest in your Bibles. And by that I mean invest time, spend time learning what it says. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God gives us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So if you're ever really saved, now the problem again is we think, well, I made an altar call. I prayed the sinner's prayer. We think that saved us. Well, it didn't work for me, so now I'm no longer a Christian. That person never was a believer in the first place. First John chapter 2, verse 19 says, by explanation, they went out from us to prove they never really belonged to us. And for John, and also for Peter, you can read about it in their epistles, it was something that never left them, this whole idea with Judas. How could we have missed Judas? How could we have thought he was a believer? And John, at the end of his life, answers the question for himself. Well, he went out from us to demonstrate that he was never really a part of us. There's always going to be people who think they're Christians. But if you're really saved, if you ever were, you still are and always will be. None of us hope that helps. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. Remember, it's much better program when you call 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the last half of the program, the last 30 minutes of the week. 340-9585. Here is a question from Kevin. How can I explain to someone that Jesus was real and not just a myth. Kevin, you don't have to explain. Don't even try to explain. Just declare. Don't defend. Just declare. Now, I say it that way, and I, and I, I say so strongly. And, and the reason is because this is one of the most dishonest questions that anybody could ever ask. All they have to do is open a book. And I'm not talking about the Bible. All they have to do is uh, search the historical Jesus. There is no question, the overwhelming preponderance of evidence is that Jesus was a real person, that he really lived, he did miraculous things. You can read that in secular history, um, most notably Josephus, his antiquities. Uh, he was a Jew, certainly not a convert to Christianity. Uh, he actually was uh, worked for commissioned by Rome uh, to keep an accurate history of the things going on in and around Jerusalem. But it's not just him. Secular writings from the earliest times talk about this man, Jesus, who was purported to do miraculous things. So all they have to do is open a book. If they really want to know, God will show himself to them. So if they just take that first step, so that's what you challenge them to do. Call them on their intellectual dishonesty. So if you were really interested in if Jesus was a real person, you'd find out. It's easy to do it. You might even volunteer to take him to a library. Anybody can find out the information. The evidence is utterly overwhelming. Now, the people who ask these questions, they do so, Kevin, because they're trying to find Christians that don't know anything and they're trying to shake the faith of Christians. So here's what you say. I can tell you how I know he's real. He lives in me. I talk to him every day and he talks to me. He speaks to me in his word. He's changed my life. That's how I know he's real. And if you're interested in your life changing, then find out. And just leave it like that with them. Uh, it's just not an honest question. 
Here is a question from, oh, we got George calling on line one from San Antonio. George, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hello, Pastor Ron. Uh, hi, hi, George. I was just calling. Excuse me, let me adjust the phone just a second here. I'm not really sure of the whole question, Pastor Ron. I just kind of wanted to call and say hello and, uh, I don't know, hear your voice. And if you can <laughs> think about it, say a little prayer for my wife. She's still ailing a little bit. But uh, oh. it's good to talk to you. Just I'm glad you're on the radio. And, oh, everything else is just kind of like everyday life, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it goes on, doesn't it? Right. But um, I guess if I if I just formulated the first question that came into my head, if I had to have a question, I would just say that um, when you I heard one of your sermons where you said that our promises in the Old Testament are not really what we go by; we go by the ones in the New Testament. So, mm-hmm. with that in mind, that a person it kind of makes me wonder a little bit if I'm reading the Old Testament. Do I need to be sensitive to what what really applies to a Gentile? Or is it basically you can get inspiration from, from either book, I guess, is what I would yeah, ask. That, that, thank you, George. And, and just so everybody knows, when I'm asking people to call, it's just because you're more interesting than I am. It's not, I don't want anybody to feel like they've got to ask questions. But, but it's important, um, George, and we will be praying for your wife, by the way. Um, you know, the Old Testament, oh, uh, thank you, George. I, I've, I've characterized it like this before. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember the Connect the Dots coloring books. Um, uh, as a kid, we'd, we'd fill in the outline, and then we'd be able to finally see, oh, I know what that is. Well, that's what the Old Testament is for those of us as New Testament Christian. Uh, so the, the, it, it's, it has great value. It shows us the the consistency of God, the faithfulness of God, the majesty of God. Remember, in in the early church, they didn't have the New Testament written yet. So the the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, is what they had. And they would go back through those scriptures. They would prove that Jesus was the Christ, and it would start to fill in all of the pictures that they had. All the questions would be answered. So... Uh, view it like that. It's Jesus' story from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And if in the Old Testament in particular, you'll look for Jesus on every page, you're going to see how God has always worked. It's the same way he works now. It's just pre-Jesus, pre-cross, and post-Jesus, post-cross. So we get really, really great understandings. The Old Testament has such great value. Now, the the problem is, if we take something that was written for Israel, I'll just give an example, the Ten Commandments, uh, and in particular, the Sabbath worship. Um, Well, well, we can read that without understanding to whom um, um, Moses was writing, um, to whom God was speaking, And then we can immediately say, well, then that means we have to worship on the original Jewish Sabbath. No, because he was writing to the Israelites, and he had a very specific purpose for doing that. And when we talk about the promises that were given to Israel, they're wonderful promises. And God's going to keep every single one of them. But those promises are nothing, nothing compared to the promises that we have as New Testament Christians. There isn't a single Old Testament hero. You can read about all of them, not all of them, but the, but the famous ones in Hebrews chapter 11. Every one of those people, if we could go back in time and space and say, would we want to trade places with me? Christ lives in me and Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you want to tra-? They'd say, yes, I'll trade places with you. You do my miracles, I'll have Jesus living in me. So it's really important that, that we take those promises in context In Romans chapter 8 alone, George, just Romans chapter 8, we're made so many wonderful promises that even um, the the great of the greats, uh, Abraham and Moses and David, none of them, even Joseph, none of them could understand the significance of the promises that we have. So what we've got to do is read the Old Testament and in all sincerity look for Jesus and your Bible will be opened up to you I promise you that George thank you and we will be praying for 
um, your wife, but she will get better. 340-9585, here is a question uh, that came in from our email inbox from AA. Pastor Ron, Happy New Year to you and all the folks at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, thank you, AA. And by the way, we haven't heard from you for a bit. It's good to know that you're okay. Uh, he says, my question is, the subject verse says that, and it's Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 is the subject verse, says that God chose his children before creating the world. Are we also to assume he chose the angels before the foundation of heaven? How do we know God chose us then? Did Jesus say so? Did he give Paul a revelation to write it? It seems somewhat backward to say that God only chose those who would choose him back because we humans do that. Um, we're, we're a completely different subject than the angels. The angels were created by God sometime in eternity past. We don't know when, but sometime in eternity past. And they were created to be God's holy angels. Now, even they had a choice to make, and they, their choice was a one-time choice. Unlike us, we can, we can choose to, to follow Jesus or choose not to follow Jesus. And if we choose to follow, not follow Jesus for our entire lives, then at the end of our life, if we're able, we can, we can say, Jesus, forgive me, and, and we can be a part of the family. Not so with the angels in heaven. They had a one-time only choice. Now, a third of the angels made the wrong choice, Lucifer chief among them. But two-thirds of the angels maintained their first estate. Did God know who was and who wasn't going to choose him? Of course he did. But he created the angels. They had a one-time choice. Now, for you and for me, we're told that God chose us based on his foreknowledge. His foreknowledge of what? Foreknowledge of what we would do. God offers the whole world salvation. And short of forcing people to accept it, there's no way that... I mean, he knew everybody wouldn't do it. I mean, he could force, he's God, but then that wouldn't be an expression of love, not to honor our free will. So what we need to understand is that God chose us. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are few chosen? Because Jesus said the road to destruction is wide and well-traveled. The road to salvation is narrow and few find it. So it's not a, well, I'm only going to love the people that love me back. God loved the whole world. But in fact, he loved us so much, every person who's ever lived so much, that he let them choose while they were alive where they're going to spend eternity. And that's what we need to remember about God, AA. I know God chose me because I'm saved. I know God chose you, AA, because you're a Christian. And I said this in an earlier question. There's nobody who's saved, who's really saved and walking with Jesus, who doesn't know and have assurance that they were chosen by God and saved. I love the fact that God chose me. Nobody else would when I was such a jerk. But God chose me. He loved me so much, he made Paula stay in a marriage, a loveless, ridiculous sham of a marriage for the 13 years since she got saved until I did. It was a painful, painful time for her, but God loved me that much. And he used Paula as his instrument to love me into the family of God. I was stubborn. It took me a long time. But why would God tell her to stay with me and be in such pain? Because God knew that day in February of 1991 was going to come when I would fall on my face and surrender my life to him. So that's how we know. I think it's interesting when you said, did he give Paul a revelation to write this? Ephesians, by the way, doesn't mention foreknowledge. 1 Peter chapter 1 does as well as Romans chapter 8, that election is based on God's foreknowledge. But Paul didn't have to write that to the church at Ephesus because they already knew it. He spent more than three years with the church at Ephesus, and he'd already taught them doctrinally. So Peter, he mentioned it. Paul, when writing to the church at Rome, a church he'd never been to, he gave the details. But to Ephesus, he didn't have to. And... Paul was given a revelation. Paul calls it mysteries. Paul 
Paul was given mysteries. You know, Paul was taught individually by Jesus for three years in the Arabian wilderness, not Saudi Arabia, but the Syrian wilderness, um, the Arabah. For three years, Jesus would meet with Paul. Not three years consecutively, but for three years, Paul was Jesus' student. And in that three years, and later in Paul's ministry, he was given answers to things he could only imagine. I tell you, a mystery. The mystery of the rapture of the church. To Ephesians, to the, the church at Ephesus, the mystery of Jews and Gentiles, two separate groups of people forming one body that we call the church. The mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So yeah, Paul was given a lot of revelations. I can't imagine what that must have been like. But A, it's really not that uh, difficult. It's not like God simply said, I choose you because you're lovable, but I'm not going to choose them. Many are called. Everybody has the offer of heaven. For God so loved the world, but only a few respond. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Wes. He wants to know, how do we know the Bible can really be trusted? Wes, I could talk about this for an hour. I won't do that. I will spare the audience. But this is the most important question any Christian can ever find the answer to. Once you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, this is the most important question that, that, that we have to answer for ourselves. Um, I know it can be trusted because God showed me. Um, Wes, in my early days as a believer, I was so curious and I would ask so many questions. And every time I'd ask a Christian question, uh, they'd say, well, the Bible says. Well, it didn't make sense to me that the Bible could be God's word and also a book written by men. So I had to find out. And I was so exercised over this, I, I just finally got one day on my knees and said, Lord, I need to know if all of the answers are in this Bible, how do I know that I can trust this Bible? And I began the process of finding out. Now, in my case, uh, Wes, it took two and a half, maybe three months at the most before I was 100% convinced. Some people, it takes longer. Some people, Paula, bless her heart, she just believes it. She has a witness of her spirit that it's true. Uh, I, I, I wasn't the case with me. And so I had to find out. So I read how we got our Bible. Uh, I read um, as much as I could on the history of the, the authors of the Bible. Uh, I opened the Bible and wanted to know that the Bible was speaking to me. And... Um, doing as much study as I possibly could, and it was pretty intense for me, there just came that moment when it was like Jesus was standing right there in the room with me, and he's saying, okay, are you convinced? And I was. And I was. And the reason, Wes, it matters so much is because from that moment on, I've never had a single doubt about my salvation. I've never had a single doubt about where to find the answers to the problems of life. We who are Christians who don't really invest time and energy in our Bibles, we've got so many questions and so many doubts, but if you'll open the Bible, if you'll dig in, you'll put it to the test, you will know. Now, Wes, I, I won't bore you with all the evidence, but the manuscript evidence that our Bible is trustworthy is overwhelming. We have more evidence that our Bible is the Word of God by virtue of ancient manuscripts than we have of any other book by far ever written. The manuscript evidence is overwhelming. The archaeological evidence. We have every time somebody doubts the Bible says this was there or that was there, we find something archaeological that backs it up. 
There's a prophetic evidence. Only the Bible tells the future in advance. Every prophecy has been fulfilled just as the Bible said it would. And the only remaining unfulfilled prophecies are those dealing with Jesus' second coming. But if 95% of all the other prophecies have come true exactly as predicted, it is certainly reasonable to suggest that the last 5% of those remaining prophecies are also going to come true as predicted. No other religious book purports to tell the future. And God's Word does it perfectly. You can read the last two chapters of Daniel's book. And the history of the nations around Israel is told with such precision that critics say, well, it had to be written after the Bible claims the book of Daniel was written. Because nobody could tell the future with that sort of precision. Well, God can. He did. So that's all you have to know, but it's something that you've got to dig into. As you dig in to find out whether or not your Bible is true, there's a day when you'll just know beyond any doubt and you'll never have another question that is without an answer. So, Wes, I hope that answers your question. For me, as I said, uh, in, in I've been saved for nearly 27 years and for, uh, I'm going to say, the last... 25 and a half years, maybe even 26 years. I've never had a moment's doubt that this Word of God contained the truth as God delivered it. Never a moment's doubt. And oh, is that ever comforting to know. So Wes, thank you. I hope that helps. 340-9585. Here's a question from Sam. If my prayers aren't being answered, why should I keep praying? Well, you should keep praying because Jesus told you to pray. Paul told you in the Word of God to pray without ceasing. See, Sam, here's the thing. Prayers are always being answered. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is just not the way you want them to be prayed or you want your prayers to be answered. And usually when I get a question like this, somebody's wanting a husband or a wife or a new car, a new job, or uh, be healed from some illness, and, and they think, well, God's not listening to me because he's not hearing my prayers. He's not answering my prayers. God's always answering them. But sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says yes. My experience, Sam, is that most of the time he says wait. So if your only reason for praying is to get your prayers answered, you don't understand the purpose of prayer very much, very well. So give God a chance to say yes. Be patient and earnest in prayer. Walk with the Lord. One other thing, Sam. I always tell the church here at Calvary Chapel, if your prayers aren't being answered, the first thing you need to do is ask God if it's something in you that's keeping the answers from you. Lord, am I being obedient? Is there any unclean way in me? Is there anything that you've asked me to do that I haven't done? Is my heart, are my motives right with you? That's why Paul said to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith. Here is sort of an annoying anonymous question. And when I say annoying, I'm not upset that you ask it. But it always drives me crazy that Christians have to ask this question or questions like it. Anonymous says, Pastor, on a friend from church recommended getting a Christian life coach. Would that be something you would recommend? Anonymous, you have a life coach. His name is the Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus. He's given you all the coaching you need in the Bible. What irritates me is that somebody from church would say, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I respond the same way when people ask me about discipleship one-on-one or accountability groups. If you're not going to be accountable to the one who died for your sins, you're not going to be accountable to a human. 
no, you don't need a Christian life coach. I know you can see I'm um, talk television. That that's kind of a cool thing to do. But all these worldly ideas have no place in the life of a Christian. None whatsoever. So no. Anonymous, open your Bible. Spend time sitting with Jesus. I said earlier, Paul had Jesus all to himself for three years. I promise you, if you start today and you spend time with Jesus on a daily basis, open your Bible, then go out, take a walk with him, talk to him, take him to work with you, take him out with you, wherever you go. I promise you, in three years, you'll be so well coached Everybody will want to know what the secret is to the joy in your life and in your heart. So no, no, a thousand times no. No Christian life coaches. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. i got about two and a half minutes, so I'll do a quick question from Denise. She wants to know, and Denise, I apologize, this question's been here for a week and I haven't gotten to it, so today we do. Can women be pastors? The answer, Denise, is no, they can't. Now, I know some have called themselves pastors, but God hasn't called them to be a pastor. We know that because God would never violate his word. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, we're told in First Timothy. He's talking about order in the church. It doesn't mean God doesn't think women are smart enough or spiritual enough. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like women or he's punishing women. It's just what the Bible says, and every Christian has to deal with what the Bible says. And Denise, for those who um, would take a different view, they can't explain that away. Well, you know, that was an old culture where things are different now. We live in a much different culture. Paul says there's no difference between Jew and Greek, male or female, slave or free. So, but, but, but there's different roles assigned. And that shows a lack of knowledge of the Bible that these ladies who call themselves pastors are supposing to teach. So no, they can't. Women can be Bible teachers, and that's a great calling. But no pastor is reserved for males. Hey, thanks for a good week on the program. Quiet on the phones today, but may the Lord bless you and keep you. Stay warm, stay safe, and find somebody and tell them, that Jesus loves them, invite them to church with you. We'll see you next week. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.